they have um, these wins behind them. They've got their handling of COVID. Their economy is going to grow eight and a half percent this year. Um, they lost very few people in official or even unofficial estimates compared to what's been happening in the West. Um, and they're living an open life, by the way, at the moment. All the cities are open. So they're doing some things that uh, their own population think are right. And coincidentally, we've just seen the um, 14th five-year plan, which is a state top-down strategy document, uh, be released. And so I wanted to start by asking Stefan, who's taken a look at the plan, what the differences are between the 13th five-year plan, which just ended, and this next five-year plan. And talk a little bit about maybe the model of governance in China and how it differs from the West. Mm, absolutely, um, happy to. And as I said, always really very happy to chat with you about China, Daniel. Um, so I think if we look at China, um, it's important, as you've mentioned, to understand the planning cycles and uh, the governance model. So if you look at the 14 5 year plan or any plan, plan before, um, it's more of a general outline, uh, so a guideline, uh, a vision, if you want it. And throughout the next five years, there will be a lot of sub-plans, sub-strategies or implementations that they're going to um, implement uh, at a very regional level. Uh, how they do it, you've mentioned top-down, which is true to a certain extent that the plan is coming top-down, but it's actually a bottom-up process. So the government is actually asking society, what are your issues? What are your problems? Uh, what do we need to improve? And based on that, then formulates, formulates um, certain targets, certain initiatives. Um, and the other interesting thing is, you've mentioned trust as well. Um, the society trusts its government to a great extent. Um, so every politician in China has a KPI. Every politician is rated uh, by society or by uh, the governmental system. So everyone starts at the bottom, at the village level, province level, and then needs to move up the ranks to get to the central government. But to be able to get there, there's extreme competition and you need to perform. And especially through that KPI system, uh, it's to a certain extent very transparent. It's published what has been achieved, what went well, what did not go too well. Uh, so I think if you look at China, this is really important to always keep in mind. It's a different system, uh, a different philosophy, and one has to look at the Chinese system from Chinese eyes. Um, and now coming to the 14 five-year plan, especially in relation to the 13 five-year plan, um, it's very comprehensive, much more than the 13 five-year plan, I would say. Um, when I read it, there are... Um, I would say five themes that, are, that were really interesting, um, which are security, innovation, green development, openness, and governance. So coming from the trade war, of course, China now thinks what do they need to do to secure their country, uh, their supply chains. Uh, so their own plans for, in terms of food security, for example, or even military security. Uh, in terms of innovation, you have a continuation of the Made in China 2025 plan, which focuses on robotics, uh, new energy vehicles, and so on. But they now define new um, investment targets or new industries uh, like quantum computings, 
um, brain science, um, nanotechnologies, and so on. And the trade war also revealed that there are fundamental problems in the foundation. So in this plan, you have a 10-year plan now uh, in terms of basic research. So they go much deeper into the technologies. Uh, green development is huge throughout the plan now. Uh, so their own carbon um, targets. Um, they want to achieve carbon neutrality by 2060. Uh, reforestation targets. So in the next five years, they will reforest approximately the size of Austria or two thirds of England. And last but not least, the two um, things that I've mentioned as well were openness and governance. Openness, it's really incredible. Throughout the plan, the um, government is actually focusing on how to, um, to collaborate with international governments, uh, international NGOs, uh, how to collaborate, how to um, establish a community for, share, for um, shared uh, humanity, for example. So it's, that's what those words that you use. Um, and in terms of governance, yes, the party is going to be stronger. The party is essential. So ideology is getting stronger, as you've mentioned rightly. However, there will be reforms within. So they're focusing more on balances of power, um, rotation systems, whistleblower mechanisms, for example. Um, so they, they want to, they want to um, integrate more civil society and, and improve checks and balances. Now we hear almost nothing of these developments in the West. Um, and uh, I think that that's something that we can benefit from is hearing more about this from people such as yourself who've looked at the plan but in detail. Why do you think uh, that is? Why, why do people usually in the West don't know uh, most of the things or they focus just on a specific thing within the plan? Well, I think you've, you raise a very good question, which is in the, in the liberal Western democracies and in the West, what is the information flow? What is the channel? And how broad is the spectrum of information we receive about China? And what I've noticed over the last year or two, or maybe five, let's say, is that the, the channel, the spectrum is getting narrower and narrower, and it's focused really on three or four subjects. It's, it's Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, South China Sea. Those are the principal four subjects and also trade in general. Um, putting aside trade because, uh, for example, the, the US I think is at a global high for its trade deficit, but it's, it's grown over the last four years during the Trump administration, which was counter to what he wanted. Um, also the China-US trade deficit has grown over the last four years quite significantly. But putting the trade issue to one side, why is it that all we hear about China is, is these negatives? And the, but no one's discounting uh, these negatives or sweeping them under the, under the carpet. But wouldn't it be more balanced if we heard about some of the positives? For example, 55 million people were brought out of rural poverty in the last five-year plan, such that China, effectively to its own standard achieved the eradication of poverty. Um, they had a probe land on the dark side of the moon, the first time ever, technological advances. They've got a probe now uh, in the Mars atmosphere. Um, they built 
a vast high-speed rail network over the last 20 years, which is larger than anywhere in the world. And that's transformed the societies that they live in there. But maybe more importantly, they've enjoyed nearly 40 years of extremely peaceful domestic circumstances. In contrast to, I'm going to use the US as, a, as its principal counterweight. So uh, any US uh, listeners, please just, I'm using an example that's obvious to everyone. Um, the US has had 38 wars in the last 45 years. So you, there are there's some big differences between the two, but we only hear the negative for China. If we have only heard about the US, its racial problems, um, its gun culture, and the, its warmongering, and, and if we only heard that, no one would want to go to the US. But of course, we have all the other positives that balance that out, the vibrancy of the society, its um, culture, and, and other aspects. So we still want to go there. So um, I think that uh, this needs to change. We're going to live through a cycle of extremely negative, narrow press, but we need to kind of um, be aware that there's more going on than what we're being fed by the, the media and in the West. And so um, I think that uh, this comes to another issue, which is uh, we really don't know much about China from a Western perspective. In the UK, there's only 2,500 people learning Chinese in the education system, the universities. Yet there's 160,000 Chinese students in the UK. They know us far better than we know them. And that kind of imbalance ratio is replicated everywhere. Um, I think that we've got a lot of work to actually balance out the picture that we're, that we're hearing. Um, let me give an example from this morning. We had the new ambassador to the UK, Mr. Yang Xiaoguang. Um, he was talking about UK-China relations and the Xinjiang cotton issue that's come up most recently. Um, some Western firms and indeed Western countries are concerned that there's um, forced prison labor in the cotton industry in, China, in Xinjiang in Northwest China. It was very interesting because we don't know what the information is. We accept that Western countries will have done their homework. And yet um, the Chinese are rebutting it very forcefully. And today I saw a video that they played in, in this um, meeting with the Chinese ambassador of Lawrence Wilkerson. Lawrence Wilkerson was the former chief of staff to Colin Powell. Um, he's a retired army colonel and he's been an advisor to the CIA. And the video that they posted, which is online, was from a year and a half ago, where he said, the reason that the US is in Afghanistan is because number one, they want to be close to Pakistan's nuclear warhead stockpile in case there's a problem. Number two is that there are 20 million Uyghurs in Northwest China who they are, the CIA is targeting to um, uh, destabilize the Chinese regime. So this is, he's saying this in a public forum. It's one of their strategies. And the problem with this is it may just be his opinion or it may reflect the reality. But the problem is that that's used as counter fodder by the Chinese side to undermine a lot of the arguments. There's basically in China, the, the, the response is, this is just another Western plot and they're unhappy because we're growing and we're strong and we're confident and we've handled COVID well and our trade is strong, so on and so forth. 
So it's very, you know, we need to work hard to try and get more angles and more opinions. And so let me uh, talk a little bit about um, how we can improve this. I think that uh, Western governments can play a part because it's more than just trade that we're talking about here. Um, different cultures should be embraced and understood. I think China's history should be better communicated in the West. Um, the hundred years of foreign occupation, which ripped China apart until 1949, is seared very deeply on the Chinese psyche, but we don't really consider that in the West. When we um, say to them, you know, we're not happy with what's going on in, in Tibet or Hong Kong, um, and we recognize that there are issues in a multicultural China, yet we've got to remember that they're trying to secure their borders and they haven't been an aggressive imperialist power outside of their borders. What they've done in Tibet and Hong Kong isn't something that any of us like to see, but they consider that the historical territory. Um, and even in the South China Sea, that kind of argument prevails, but they're not looking to uh, occupy other parts of, of the world or the diaspora in Southeast Asia. And if you compare that to the United States going into Central America for so many years, you can see that the Chinese do have some arguments saying, look, we're not doing that kind of thing. So don't tar us with the same, same brush. Don't apply a moral yardstick when you haven't got your own act together. And I think we don't, we lose sight of that often in, in, this, in this time. Um, so we need to broaden our source of media. I think we need to travel to China, engage with overseas Chinese who are here, maybe even learn some of the language, but keep a balanced view. Um, I nowadays try and get as many news sources that are completely diametrically opposed um, so that I can try and find a middle ground of, of rationality. Um, so on that, let's look forward in China. And uh, I wonder, Stefan, what your thoughts are about the opportunities from this plan and on the ground there now. Um, good question. Um, thank you. Um, so maybe even from my own experience working in China or um, developing businesses there. Um, so I think it's it's always important to look at the country holistically, understand the plans, understand the history, the philosophy, um, and very often shadow your strategy uh, in terms of or in relation to the plans that the country has. Um, Whenever I say there, there are many opportunities basically in, in China, I would say, but it never makes sense um, to go into the country saying, I've got a product, how can I sell it? Who wants it? But rather going to China with a different kind of mindset saying, I understand what your issues are, what your problems are, where you want to go, uh, what you would like to achieve and how my product or my service can actually help you achieve your goals. Um, and this applies to nearly every industry uh, that I've experienced uh, in the country. So opportunities, many. Um, the plan is very comprehensive. There are a lot of opportunities within it in terms of technology, but as well in terms of green uh, development or the arts. Um, but important, I think, is really understand the culture and see what benefit your product or your service can bring to the plan, uh, to the country or to the society. And 
you, especially coming from the financial side, uh, or you have long experience uh, in the country, where do you see the opportunities? Well, um, assuming that you can get over the, the, the moral outrage mm -hmm. ometer that currently suggests that you shouldn't do anything with China, but it yet is not applied to Saudi Arabia or to maybe Russia if you're a German pipeline builder or whatever. We have various um, contradictions in our own moral definition of what's right around the world. But assuming you can get over that or make your own judgment, then um, for a start of 5% of, of Chinese stocks are owned by foreigners. So it's the second largest stock market in the world. It's the second largest bond market in the world. Only 5% of both held by foreigners compared to 30% in Korea, uh, other markets right across Asia, 25, 30% in America. Um, so it's very un uninvested from an international perspective. And there are plenty of obvious reasons for that as well as liquidity and transparency. Um, so I would say having exposure to the Chinese market as it grows uh, is very good for diversification. Um, financial sectors are opening, asset management, investment banking, stockbroking. Um, there's a great demand for services such as accounting and consulting. And there's a very large growing middle class. So uh, everything to do with servicing the middle class, electric vehicles, food, wine, clothing, accessories, education, those are all um, areas to look at in China over the next five to 10 years. So, and so Daniel Stepan, if I can just cut in here, because we've, we've uh, hit our 20 minutes. So thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating. Lots of um, questions coming in. I'm going to, uh, uh, Belton Road uh, was something that I wondered whether you had not spoken about deliberately, but questions are coming in on that. But I just, I reading my economist the other day, uh, major world corporations are still investing very heavily in China. So even though you're saying, um, you know, the West is perhaps the media that isn't really picking up on things, things good in China. Certainly, I understand the, uh, the, the major corporations of the world are continue to invest and invest heavily. Well, that's right. Um, there's one million foreign businesses in China, large and small. Amcham in China, 70% of members are increasing their investment. China's liberalizing large swathes of its economy. So they've had 65 applications from Western asset managers to run domestic, wholly owned domestic operations in China. So the political white heat is a real disconnect. The political white heat of um, tit for tat between governments completely does not reflect the reality on the ground of business. And in my own view, the next five, 10 years, the momentum is just going to increase in the favor of ongoing business because the tit for tat, they're very targeted and deliberately so. Um, and yes, there may be a couple of sectors like, um, like uh, semiconductors, maybe now pharmaceutical manufacturing. Um, some of that supply chain may be, may be moved offshore from China or maybe moved domestically back, but actually uh, that momentum still continues. And I think Stefan probably has some good comments on the Belt and Road. Yeah, but Stefan, just before you come in, can I ask uh, Joe, Joe Bricato, um, uh, the aforementioned latest, newest member to Forum, uh, can you put your question on the Belt and Road, Joe, please? From uh, This is Joe from Chicago, everybody. Absolutely. Hello, everyone, again. Um, 
I was just curious as to if there were any initiatives in the Chinese 13th five-year plan that were targeted at specifically at raising so many people out of poverty. And then are there any lessons that we can learn, other countries can learn from those initiatives to help maybe better address the poverty problems in our countries? Daniel or myself? Um, so in the, in the 14 five-year plan, yes. Um, so in the 13 five-year plan in the previous one, this already was a big topic of um, improving the livelihoods for the poor in rural areas. So they already uh, put a strong focus on that. In the 14 five-year plan, this is just being increased um, by even focusing even more uh, on the rural population and integrating them maybe even in urban areas on the one hand, but uh, providing opportunities uh, for business opportunities still in the rural areas. So they want to improve the livelihood there, um, greening, um, cleaning it. So they really um, put a strong emphasis on that. I can share with you uh, the plan if you want. Um, as, and as well the detailed plan. So I think it's very comprehensive to talk about it now in the details, but I'm happy to share it with you afterwards. Daniel, do you want to answer that, uh, make a point to that as well? Yeah, I think um, one of the things they did, the, the initiatives included providing housing um, for, so they built new housing areas close to these rural villages. Some of the rural villages was, were high up in the mountains and they would have to walk half an hour or an hour just to get water. So um, they put in drainage, they built housing nearby alternatives, and um, they took it step by step. Every, every um, step of the way in terms of uh, making sure that the rural population in the poorest areas had a safety net. It's really very impressive, and we don't hear anything about it in the West. So I've got some questions from, um, I'm going to go to um, Ian Ledzian now, please. I've got some questions from Thomas Brown and Michael Meehan, which I, if we can get there, we'll get there in terms of timing. Otherwise, I'll make sure that those questions get to both Stefan and Daniel post this conversation. But Ian, there you are from uh, Lausanne. Lovely to see you. Well, no, I'm in Verbier, actually. Verbier, so sorry. Got, sorry. The, got the mountain wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can hear me. So the question was down to the you know the, the mismatch between 170,000 and the two and a half thousand. And I said it what it speaks about the attractiveness, but it was just trying to encapsulate the idea of soft power, uh, which I think is where China has an enormous deficit, and the concept of outward and inward uh, cultures, where you'd say our Western cultures are outward, as in we're quite happy to to spread spread it. Whereas the Chinese tend to be more inward looking and do not have the idea that they want to export their political system. Uh, but that does lead to this enormous mismatch between perceptions and what they want to do and what we want to do, which is probably where a lot of the, the cultural friction is happening. As you said, the, the business side is a totally different story because business follows the money. Well, that's a... Uh... I mean, those are fantastic observations and you're absolutely right. I think when you're running a country that is one fifth of mankind, you'd be excused for thinking that you've got your hands full with your own domestic agenda and the plate is big enough. You've got to work on what's there. Um, China did make an effort and in some areas has truly succeeded in spreading um, 
its soft power around the world. And I think it was doing very well until, until it made a decision about Hong Kong, to be honest. Until then, the Confucian societies, for example, they had set up for uh, learning Chinese had spread across the world. The Belt and Road 1.0 wasn't that well received because it had quite onerous debt um, requirements. If uh, governments didn't pay back, then they'd own a port facility like in Sri Lanka. But when they reset the Belt and Road about two years ago, 2.0 was more about greening the Belt and Road, collaborative um, investment with local governments, and uh, making sure that there weren't any punitive um, default conditions. All of that showed that they were quite a quick learner and were, were willing to, to adapt. And that was positive. But I think they've lost the soft power that they had, or it's been diminished by, first of all, Hong Kong, and secondly, now Xinjiang in particular. And they've made a calculation that they're strong enough and confident enough to not care about that for now. I think they feel that actually a, a very strong, vibrant China is, is okay. And even Xi Jinping's dual circulation policy that he rolled out um, a year and a half, two years ago, is basically saying, it's recognizing that there is going to be a bifurcation of some values and of some technologies. And they're saying, let's get China and its domestic consumption going so that we can be self-sufficient. And then we'll have another circulation of trade and interaction with the West. But I think they've got a short circuit switch there, which is if, if the rest of the world doesn't want to deal with us, we're going to be strong and self-sufficient and comfortable anyway. And that's the dual circulation philosophy. And Stefan, would you like to add to that or? Um, maybe just uh, in terms of the numbers in um, uh, UK students. Um, so I think it's attractive for them to study abroad, uh, to have a different um, view of the world, let's say like that. But I think a better indication is how many actually stay then in the US and UK and how many go back uh, to China to develop business or to enter into a company. And out of those, many actually go back. The vast majority, that's right. The vast majority, exactly. So we're, we're just hitting our time now, but I just want one more question. Michael, I'm going to ask this question on your behalf, if that's okay, Michael Meehan. Um, again, just, just to come back to the one, one Belt, One Road strategy. Um, and, and Michael writes here that um, it was heralded as the largest FDI economic development initiative in history. But reports indicate that investment has dropped by more than half. So what is, Daniel, I'll come to you first. What is your perspective on the future of Belt and Road? Well, I, it's a good question. And I think the, the height massively exceeded um, the practical reality in the beginning, because quite early on, there were commitments and indications that it could be $4 trillion of uh, investment across 120 countries. But the reality is that had to be financed. Each project has to be assessed and agreed. And this is not just a five year or a 10 year thing. This is 30 years, 50 years. So you have to kind of amortize that value over a much longer period. That's the first thing. But everyone got very excited in the beginning. And um, the second is it's partly to do with, I mean, we talk about soft power, but this is exporting China's hard power, if you like, in the sense that it's everything they're good at, building roads and railways, ports, 
infrastructure quickly, efficiently, um, and exporting their excess capacity because they've already built the infrastructure within China. They built their 500 cities and their hundreds of airports. And now they've got all these concrete factories and, and uh, H-beam uh, foundries. Uh, they can use a lot of that uh, excess capacity and also export the pollution to uh, other countries. So there's, some, there's a lot of strategic factors behind it. I mean, Eastern Europe, there are 16 Eastern European countries and China has set up these 16 plus one group where um, Serbia and Hungary and all these, all these other Eastern European countries are building their metros, um, their ring roads, their bridges, using Chinese companies and Chinese funding as well. So I think there is success, but we were just misled by the, the early hype that it could be so giant so quickly. And Stefan, would you like to add to that? Um, absolutely agree with it. Um, I think there was a big, a bit, a lot of hype in the 13 five year plan, and it's still uh, being continued, but not uh, with the same prominence. So you still have it as one principle within the 14 five year plan uh, to focus on the digital um, Belt and Road initiative. So it will be continued, but I don't think at, in the same size as before or in a more slower pace. So perhaps this reflects um, the earlier points you were making about Western media coverage. But again, I remember the headline for One Belt, One Road was our bulldozers, our rules. <laughs> and maybe that's just the way the West will continue to see China. But um, thank you so much, both of you. We've run, it's rather an arbitrary timing, but we've run over it. And uh, thank you all for uh, coming in. We've had a great audience today. And I'll make sure, Thomas Brown, that the points that you raised there are circulated. So thank you very much for contributing. And have a very good Easter to everyone. And thank you, Stefan. Thank you, Daniel. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.